0: Hello, and welcome to EU Today, a podcast from the Center for European Studies, a Jean Monnet Center of Excellence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you to the Erasmus Plus Program of the European Commission, the EU Delegation to the U.S., and the U.S. Department of Education for supporting our center and its programs. On this podcast, we sit down with scholars and policy leaders to discuss pressing issues facing the European Union. We hope you enjoy it. Hi listeners, my name is Alison Haskins and I am the International Education Program Coordinator for UNC Chapel Hill's Center for European Studies. In this episode of EU Today, I will be interviewing Joseph Dunn, Director of the European Parliament Liaison Office in Washington, DC. The European Parliament Liaison Office in Washington, DC, also known as EPLO, is responsible for for facilitating the development and strengthening of relations between the US Congress and the European Parliament on issues calling for transatlantic legislative and political cooperation. It contributes to the development of a transatlantic network of legislators and legislative staffers focused on issues that require legislative and political cooperation. Joseph Dunn is director of the UPLO office. In 2018, Joseph was a senior resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund in DC and a visiting fellow at the Schar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Up to that time, Joseph was a director in the Directorate General for European Parliamentary Research Service He was previously head of secretariat for the Internal Market and Consumer Protection Committee and deputy chief to cabinet for EP President Pat Cox. Before the parliament, Joseph Dunn served in the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs. He edited the first edition of Mapping the Cost of Non-Europe in April 2014. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of the Europe Today podcast with UNC's Center for European Studies. My name is Allison Haskins, and I'm the International Education Program Coordinator for the Center, and today I'm joined by Joseph Dunn, Director of the European Parliament Liaison Office in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Joe.
1: Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Allison. Thank you for having me today.
0: Yeah, you're so welcome, we're thrilled to have you. Um, I think I'll go ahead and jump into the conversation here just by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about the European Parliament Liaison Office and its work.
1: Sure, Alison, thank you. Yes, the uh, we call ourselves EPLO, which is the abbreviation for European Parliament Liaison Office. And we're the only office of our kind in the world, in fact, the only European Parliament Office outside of the European Union. The European Parliament has offices which do information work, but they don't have any other office quite like us. And it's significant because, of course, the representation of the European Union and by definition also the representation of the European Parliament as part of the European Union, that's done by the network of embassies that we have by the uh, European External Action Service, and they have in Washington as everywhere else, they have an embassy in which they call EU delegation. So we're embedded in the EU delegation, but we're, we're separate and we were created for for the purpose of uh, developing and sustaining uh, the very special relationship uh, between the US Congress and the European Parliament. So if you like, we're uh, responsible for looking at the, the parliamentary dimension of the EU-US mm-hmm. relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Go ahead. So. Yeah, no, I was going to say, and we've been here for 10 years, um, just after the Treaty of Lisbon was came into force at the end of 2009. Uh, the office was established here in April 2010. So we've been celebrating our 10th tenth anniversary this year. We, we made a little video for the website, and we would have had a large reception and dinner if the circumstances um, had not been... Dictated by a coronavirus, and we'll have to wait a little bit before we can celebrate our 10 years. But we have um, we have used this time, I think, very well. But essentially, uh, to establish ourselves on the on the landscape in in Washington and uh, become a known a known actor to to our colleagues in the Congress, and we work very closely with.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that relationship between the Parliament and U.S. Congress? Like, why specifically, you know, did the of all you know the places to put a liaison office? Why U.S. Congress and why put it in Washington D.C.?
1: Sure. I think it's essentially a, a tribute to the special importance of the U.S. Congress, and, and it, perhaps even to take a step back, it's a tribute to the special relationship we have between the European Union and the United States. I mean, it's. It, I never get tired of repeating that the relationship between the United States and the European Union is the biggest single bilateral relationship in the world. So we're talking about a, a trillion-dollar annual trade relationship, um, mm-hmm. which uh, dwarfs every other um, bilateral relationship, regional relationship in the world, and and then. You know we're both continental democracies, as our Secretary General uh, often describes it. So for us, um, for the European Parliament, which sees itself as the as the representative of the peoples of Europe and the peoples of the European Union, uh, the U.S. Congress is the obvious first and natural inter- interlocutor. Uh, Professor Henry Farrell, in his in his book, uh, well-known book, I think it's called Privacy and Power. Uh, he, he mentions that, uh, in his view, or the Parliamentary Bureau, as he calls it, was set up in Washington uh, because of the increased power powers of the European Parliament in the Justice and Home Affairs area. Um, so he links the establishment of the office to the coming into force of the Treaty of Lisbon, which vastly expanded the powers of the parliament in the justice and home affairs area. And of course, at that time there were very perhaps the biggest issues in our bilateral relationship where the issues around privacy and, um, you know, data and so on. And uh, the remember the passenger, passenger names file, all of the swift question, all of these kind of the constellation of issues in the area of Homeland security where, where uh, Europe and, and the United States took radically different views and the point in his book he explains how how important the parliament was and, and uh, then he says that one of the difficulties was that the congressmen didn't see members of the European parliament as their equivalents and this was one of the motivations behind setting up the office. So I've okay. tried to verify this hypothesis and I, I think it's a, it's a generous one. I think the reality may have been that the establishment of the office was coincidental as much as intentional, but in any case, whatever the reason, the timing was excellent.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. Um, Maybe talking a little bit more about that work with U.S. Congress, um, when you guys liaise, right, between the parliament and Congress, what does that really look like? You know, what kind of services are you offering? And then what issues maybe going off that are the ones that are really easy to talk about with Congress members and which ones are more difficult?
1: Yeah, um, there's a lot in that. A lot to, yeah, a lot, sorry. lot <laughs> Lots to unpack there. No, no, that's absolutely that's fine. Uh, up until now, up until the coronavirus lockdown, the, the lifeblood uh, of our work here was the stream of visits we have i think on average about one hundred and fifty members of the european parliament uh, come to washington every year so that in itself is a tribute to how important they how much value they attach to the us congress um, and so we, we we are obviously be heavily involved in in drawing up programs providing content for the programs and and you know developing our networks here to make Make these programs as as productive as possible so so that has evolved in the last couple of months so we're, we've been working more on on virtual contacts and and with some success developing uh, what i've been calling parliamentary conversations so we've had um, some success in, in getting members of of Congress to engage engage in virtual meetings with their counterparts in the in the European Parliament, but it's taken a little bit of time to make the adjustments. So uh, it hasn't it hasn't been easy, but we moved from a situation where we had uh, up until the end of February we had very intense person to person contacts, and now we're we're slowly getting to the stage where where we're having um, a much higher level now of virtual contacts. But it doesn't quite doesn't quite substitute, but um, you know it does does at least help to advance and sustain the relationship mm-hmm. so uh, that's in, in terms of the the personal context and in, in terms of your what you asked in your question about the the issues um, i don't i think there's a difference between the relationship between the, uh, between the administ- let's say the u s administration and the executive mm-hmm. and and rela- on the one hand and on the other hand the relationship between the uh, the Congress and the parliament and i I wouldn't say there are any issues there that are difficult to talk about um, I think what you perhaps could say is that uh, two issues that loom large and, and where d- agreement is is more difficult maybe than in other areas are the issues of of trade on the one hand where uh, Europe and the European Union tends to uh, at least these days seize Things in terms of uh, multilateral solutions and sees the uh, reform of the World Trade Organization as the important way forward. Um, You know, so so that's an important uh, important dimension, which is let's say more difficult to talk about than other issues. Mm -hmm. Um, The second issue is, of course, China, uh, where the US and and I think. Congress also in a bipartisan way would like to see the European Union more closely aligned with US policy positions uh, in relation to China. So, so this is developing day by day. This is very much the uh, front and center of the debate at the moment. And while I wouldn't say it's, it's difficult to talk about, I think it's it maybe that the positions are are more difficult to reconcile than, than in other areas. Um, then there are many issues I think we see, definitely see eye to eye on human rights, and the, the way, the treatment that has been given to the Uyghurs in, in China, including the, the concentration camps, uh, the situation in Hong Kong, uh, these are issues which are very Easy to, very difficult issues, but very easy to talk about because uh, we have very converging views on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to talk, of course, about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, the Parliament resolution, which was adopted uh, on the Friday before last, I think is a very significant uh, and very powerful development. And there are other issues we we need to talk about, such as the regulation of Artificial intelligence, uh, where we possibly have different approaches, the Green Deal, where uh, Europe is pushing ahead uh, with what we're calling the European Green Deal.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly.
1: I was going to say small issues, but let's say less salient issues, which yeah. To, <laughs> I yeah. Uh, I mean, there's no shortage of policy questions to deal with.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, so what would maybe um, from your point of view be the most important issues in the, in the parliament right now that might um, affect EU-US relations?
1: Um, well, I take the first part of that question first. Let's say that the most important issues in the parliament I think are uh, to some extent European Union issues because the mm-hmm. coronavirus crisis um, highlighted the fragility of the European Union, um, as I think Mrs. Merkel said recently, just at the moment when we felt we were strong, and then the crisis struck, and it's struck very deep. And we came to the situation, and in the discussion on the multiannual financial framework and the question of how we were going to finance the the reaction uh, and the uh, the recovery plan for against COVID-19 and the effects of COVID-19 uh, that really risked bringing the European Union to its knees, and, and the division of opinion over uh, collective, having a collective approach to debt and allowing uh, the more affected member states uh, leeway in financial terms rather than just giving them loans with heavy heavy conditions. Uh, this issue, uh, I won't say almost brought down, but it certainly was a, was a very difficult issue to deal with. And we're not, we're not out of the woods yet, but uh, mm-hmm. thanks to the leadership of France and Germany, um, and, and I think the strong unanimous support of, of the European Parliament, it looks as though we're, we're heading out of the woods there. And uh, hopefully the European Union will emerge uh, as a s- stronger entity as a result of the crisis and in the time-honored way that the European Union seems to thrive, ironically seems to thrive on crises and
0: yeah. the matter,
1: <laughs> matter of crises uh, stronger than before and more resilient than before. Certainly, so yeah. Is, so, so I think uh, that, that's probably what is behind. The parliament has been calling very strongly for a convention on the future of Europe and in the last session, uh, they asked for this to happen in the next months. I have the feeling that the, the member states are a little bit less enthusiastic to sit around the table and talk about uh, the future design of the European Union. But um, it's clear that the events of the last months, the last six months, have really uh, brought a, f- a focus on on this issue. So, so I would say that's a kind of central central issue. Then, in terms of issues related to the United States. I think that Black Lives Matter is, is a big issue. The, the question of of, of uh, how you deal with racism and how you de- deal with um, abuses of power by, by police agencies or, or other um, people in positions of power. That's, that's something where I think there, there can be a, a very strong, there's a very strong basis for a dialogue and for moving ahead. Mm-hmm. I was amazed, or I'm amazed is the wrong word, but uh, let's say very struck by the strength and comprehensive approach of our of the European Parliament resolution. The first paragraph just simply states, affirms that Black Lives Matter, which I found a very, very powerful parliamentary language. And then it goes through the different steps which uh, the Parliament sees should be taken. And, I think these include uh, action at multi- multilateral level, and I'm personally hopeful that something like a a summit on racial justice or some high-profile event which will have concrete follow-up uh, will emerge from, from these discussions. So it's something I'm also actively working on, have been working on today, in fact, to, to make sure that mm-hmm. this critical moment uh, leads to concrete outcomes and and also becomes another area where we can come closer as EU-US and come, come closer together.
0: Yeah, so that from your point of view, you see that as a way for the two, um, like you had said before, what like continental democracies to maybe um, share some common ground.
1: Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we have you know, as, a, as a general rule, we, we, have, we share and have common ground on, on human rights and and we share the same values. So uh, we agree on uh, fighting human rights abuses in China and I think we also agree on, on fighting human rights abuses in our own countries because uh, racism and xenophobia are are not problems which are exclusive to the United States by any means. So we have our own fair share of problems in Europe and and we're very conscious of that, but also remedial action also needs to be taken Mm -hmm. in in our own countries. And I think we can can learn from each other and we can help each other.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, Another big topic in the news would be the coronavirus pandemic, correct? you know, we've talked a little bit how these protests have affected the parliament and how that maybe is in turn affecting the EU-US relationship. So how has the coronavirus, which is kind of a completely different type of um, event going on, um, how is that affecting or, you know, what does that do for the EU-US relationship right now?
1: Yeah, I think there are multiple levels and you could answer that question I think at the most superficial level, uh, it's going to cause difficulties in the coming, coming recent days um, because it is beginning to emerge that um, the US, at least in part, has not managed to deal with, with the crisis, at least in terms of the data which, is, which has been coming out in the last number of days. So it does appear likely that the European Union will impose travel restrictions on United States citizens, and that's obviously a very bad thing in uh-huh. terms of our, of our relationships, and uh, it, you know, complicates issues enormously. But I, at least from the uh, EU standpoint, it's simply a reflection of, of objective data. So, we would be hopeful that the United States would, would start again reducing the number of, of cases and. and you know, it's not—it's not, it's not a question of action against the U.S. as such, but simply a, a desire to protect the gains that Europe has made because it, it does appear, and you know, everything one says in this regard is has to be contingent. But it does appear as though the European Union has brought the um, crisis under some kind of control, even if mm-hmm. I see in the papers this morning that. Uh, um, you know hotspots in Austria and uh, such thing, but it, it, and also a, a meat factory in Germany. But it does appear overall as though this, uh, the epidemic or pandemic has been brought under control. So,
0: uh-huh.
1: so at that level, uh, obviously there there are difficulties. Um, at a higher level, uh, the European Union has tried to foster an international approach to dealing. With, with COVID nineteen, uh, has also tried to encourage an international approach towards the development of vaccines. Um, uh, the response of the United States has been, at least of the United States administration, um, has has not been enthusiastic on this score. But the, uh, I don't think that doesn't reflect the attitudes in the Congress. And certainly, um, on both sides of the aisle in the Congress, you get much more. Positive interest and positive desire to do uh, to do something in terms of international cooperation on COVID nineteen, and there has there have been statements um, to that effect from multiple chair chairmen and women in the Congress. And yeah, uh, yeah uh, then we, we talked earlier about how. How the crisis had affected the European Union in um, in an almost existential way, so hopefully we will be coming out of that and hopefully the the monies that we're spending on recovery on both sides of the Atlantic
0: uh, will, will,
1: will lead to positive outcomes
0: mm mm-hmm. yeah certainly, and hopefully you know we'll also see ourselves out of this pandemic soon enough as well
1: <laughs> we very much hope so yeah,
0: yeah. um I know that the coronavirus has put a lot of stop on this, so this question might be a bit difficult to answer, but it's interesting to see that the the European Union sees itself kind of at the beginning of a new, you know, they've they've just recently come out of an election, so there's a brand new agenda. Um, You know, I guess we're a year away now from that previous election that had happened, the the May 2019 election um, in Europe, and so now we've got new commissioners, new parliament, new MEPs in parliament, and a whole new agenda. Whereas in the U.S., we find ourselves in an election year, which, as a lot of people know, um, is not a great year for um, policy or any sorts of new agendas from an administration. Um, how does this kind of affect your work um, with Congress or maybe with you know Americans in general? Do you take a step back from policy or do you engage more with it? Like, how does the U.S. being an election year affect that?
1: And um, well, I could. Just before I answer a question, I should say that as an Irish person, I have politics in my blood. So being here in an election year and being, having a a front seat, as it were, is a a terrific experience for, um, you know, elections in in the United States are such phenomenally interesting and exciting events. It's it's a great privilege for me to be here Mm -hmm. uh, in 2020. In terms of the Congress, I mean, yes, of course, um, on the one hand, you have a, a great, great focus on uh, completing what legislation can be completed. So currently, it's the NDAA, which is uh, absorbing basically uh, much or possibly all of the energy of the Congress, and they're uh, desperately trying to to complete this must-pass legislation uh, before before the recess. Um, so, yes, on the one hand, the attention of the uh, congressional colleagues is very much on that. But there, there is still uh, room for, for them to, to listen to our views. We, we organize briefings on issues that, that are important for us. Uh, I mentioned already the, the Green Deal, uh, the question of regulation of artificial intelligence I um, China. These are issues where uh, the congressional colleagues are very happy to enter into debate. Uh, one I didn't mention, of course, was the, is the and one very concrete impact of the COVID-19, which I probably should have mentioned earlier, is the remote, remote voting and remote participation. So the European Parliament uh, has gone quite far in terms of uh, adapting its way of working to allow, has allowed, has been meeting since March in the, in, on the floor in a remote form and has been voting essentially by email uh-huh. um, and has has put put mechanisms in place which are of great interest to the congress um, The Congress adopted legislation to permit remote voting by proxy uh-huh. um, as you probably know so although it's now been been challenged legally, but all of these uh, subjects are, are still the subject of active debate that we 're having and i'm um, another Perhaps one positive aspect of the election year is we there may be a window I'm personally hoping in in October when uh, let's say key officials or or key staff members in the Congress they might have a, a week or two uh, break or downtime uh, before the election campaign starts in earnest for them and uh, you know and we're hopeful that they some of them at least might use that time to Come and see the European Parliament, or, or to, uh, to, you know, to get to know a little bit better, um, but how we work on the other side of the Atlantic.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, maybe kind of as a final wrap-up question: if you, if you could see into the future, <laughs> um, you know, with all your experience working with the Parliament and working um, in the US, what do you see as the future of EU-US relations? And how is it maybe, how has it changed and what's it going to look like?
1: Yeah, you saved the easiest question to ask, obviously. Exactly right. um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, It's it's difficult to to say anything other than that the relationship, broadly speaking, is at a a low point and and possibly the lowest it's, it's ever been. Um, yeah which is which is a great shame, but we're obviously in day to day basis we're working against that and and uh, trying to weave uh, uh, links and, and and bring the bring the tissue together but but behind that there is um, you have the basic undeniable fact of an administration which states publicly that the European Union is full and basically. Has stopped treating the European Union as the ally, uh, strategic ally, that it, it feels it is, and has perhaps pushed uh, the European Union, uh, or has strengthened the idea of strategic autonomy. And you mentioned the new, the new program, the new, the new commission, the new legislative term, and certainly the uh, idea of having. Uh, geopolitical commission and the idea of a stronger uh, strategic autonomy for European Union is partly uh, driven, let's say, by, by the new reality or, or the new attitude on the part of of some some on the US side. So my feeling is that uh, we can only go up from here in the sense that um, I feel that I'm of course a born Born optimist, but I, I feel that <laughs> I feel that our objective, that like the objective reality is such, is that that we have no choice, in a way, in the global context, but to be allies, and it absolutely makes sense for for Europe and, and the US to work together, to join together, and work together even more closely. We do we do share values in a way that no two uh, societies in the world uh, do so. I mean, it's, it's undeniable that we, we don't, I can't say, you can't say we see things the same way, but we say we see things through similar lenses and uh, we have objective reasons to, to work together. And there are no two, uh, to use the expression again, there are no two continental democracies uh, quite like the US and the European Union.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I believe that as the European Union gets stronger, um, I think it possibly would be easier for the US to work with us. Um, part of the problem is always a problem of understanding. Um, the European Union is difficult to understand, even for even for European citizens. So, um, you know, it's a, it's more than just a collection of the member states. So my feeling is that we are going to we're moving to. I can of course be wrong, and you can uh, talk to me a year from now and tell me I was completely tell me. <laughs> You're wrong. but I feel, I feel that the European Union is, is coming together in a strong way and, and I, I think the uh, relationship will, will become stronger and, and I feel certain that I will become ever busier here in my position in Washington.
0: <laughs> well, we hope you stay busy up there. <laughs> and we hope that the EU-US relationship stays busy and positive.
1: Yes, absolutely. I share that yes. study.
0: Yes. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today for this conversation. This has been really, really enlightening.
1: Thank you. I I enjoyed it very much, Alison. Thank you very much. So it was a pleasure.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please note that any opinions expressed in the EU Today podcast are solely those of our guests and our hosts and not of the UNC Centre for European Studies which takes no institutional positions. Be sure to tune in for more episodes and subscribe to EU Today wherever you listen to podcasts.